thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. I want to welcome you to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And and I know I say this every week that I'm excited about today's episode, but I really am excited about today's episode because we're going to begin to sum up some of what we've talked about over the last two weeks. And I hope it will pull all of that together and you'll, you'll have one of those aha moments. If you recall, we began in part with this statement from Abraham Kuyper, uh, given as part of the Stone Lectures at Princeton University, uh, the seminary students there, in 1898. And he said this as he looked at the battle of worldviews that was beginning to take shape then, the fruition of which we have now seen with things like critical race theory and transgenderism and so on and so forth. He said this statement. Protestantism alone, distinguishing it even from Catholicism, of course, modernism, and Islam as worldviews. He said, it alone wanders about in the wilderness without aim or direction, moving hither and thither without making any progress. And we noted it might seem that our churches are swelling, but in terms of its influence on culture, it is regressing, not progressing. And in fact, you may remember that I quoted from Mr. Berman's book, The Law Professor, Law and Revolution, that really since the early colonial period with Puritanism, Christianity has had no influence on the law and continuing to shape the law. And we are, in fact, losing the Western legal tradition that came out of uh, the Roman law and then the Reformation and canon law and all of those things. We're we're losing it because we've lost our way. And when we've lost our way, the law loses its way because our God is a God of law and order. So we come back to what Dr. George Grant said at Restoring the Vision. I won't play the clip again, but he says, whatever it is you do, you have to always begin with who is God and what has he done? Not with anthropology, with me, my subjective self, what my situation is and then let my anthropological perspective determine our theology. If we do it that way, we do it backwards. Now, why is that so important that we're doing it backwards? Listen, it goes back to the very first chapter of the Bible. If we're made in the image of God and we don't first know who God is, then we really can't know who we are. So when we turn from God, we lose our identity And losing our identity, we begin to identify more and more with creation than the creator whose image we bear. It leads right into evolution, biological evolution. You see, we don't see ourselves as having anything distinct from the rest of the creation because we don't see the glory of God, the image of God and it being impressed upon our being from creation. And so we exchange the glory of God, whose image was impressed upon us, to begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. It's exactly what Romans chapter 1 says. And ultimately, the creature we begin to worship is ourselves. 
But when we lose our identity, we also lose our purpose, the meaning for which we exist. There, there can be no telos, the philosophical word that's used for what something is for, where it's going. You know, an acorn is not just an acorn, it's actually an oak tree. It knows its telos, its end or its purpose is to sprout and to grow and to sink roots down and to, and to bring branches up. But evolution, when it escapes biology into every other sphere, as it has done, really says, think about it, there can be no known telos, no real meaning or purpose or end. It's all random and accidental. It's chance. And we can't live or live well if our life has no objective, real, substantial meaning to which inheres the idea of a purpose. And we can entertain ourselves, we can busy ourselves, we can addict ourselves to something that numbs the numbness of life, but that's not living well. That's why Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So with that in mind is the context for today. We've looked over the last two weeks at what God has done. Specifically, you'll recall, or if you've not been able to listen and don't have time to go back and listen, we, we looked at what he has done by the cross. That you can't know what God has done if you don't know what was happening on the cross. And we looked at the word atonement and how the church, since about the middle of the 1100s, began to view the atonement in one of two categories. We began to vacillate between a view of the atonement that was subjective and one that was objective. And what's what I mean by that? The subjective oriented view of the atonement focuses on what it means to me, where the terminus or the telos of Christ's work on the cross was, was for the individual, directed to the individual. That's where it terminated on God loving me. That's what it was all about. It was about me. There was the objective view that had first surfaced, to which the subjective view corresponded or, or responded, I guess you could say, where the terminus or the, the telos of Christ's work was on God himself, a vindication of his honor and glory as the means of salvation. And we noted that over time, the subjective view of the cross has become dominant. We don't even really think about the objective meaning of the cross in terms of its purpose for incarnation and why Christ had to be, why there had to be an incarnation and so on and so forth. It's all about me. But not only have we begun to lose this objective understanding of what was happening on the cross, we noted that we lost an understanding of the atonement that was the primary focus of the theological developments of the church for the first three or four hundred years of the church, namely seeing the atonement as Christus Victor, where the terminus or the telos of Christ's work was on the devil himself. Remember we quoted 1 John, to destroy the works of the devil. Now again, as I said, the view of the atonement Christus Victor does not eliminate the objective or the subjective aspects of the atonement, but this Christus Victor view of the atonement is very important to the meaning and the purpose and the understanding of our life and who we are in the cog of history. It's not just 
abstract and irrelevant. You know, a lot of times people think these theological things are, well, they're not really relevant. God loves me. He saved me. I know that. That's good. That's great. But still, what, what does that mean when I go to law school? What does it mean when I get into politics? What does it mean when I go into the job every day? What am I really doing? I, well, I'm just trying to be a good enough guy, you know, so that I, I can go to heaven. Well, that's great, but are you making any progress towards anything? Well, I'm making progress towards being holier, but if you own a business, are you, are, you, are you making progress in your business, reflecting more and more the glory and the honor of God, the way you practice law, the, the arguments that you make in court, the, the way you present yourself in, in public? I mean, you, you see, it, it, it all becomes very subjective. There isn't anything objective outside of us that, that is of concern. So Protestantism doesn't make any progress when compared to the evolutionary worldviews that now direct law and psychology and art and music and entertainment and science. So let me explain what this seemingly abstract view of the atonement means in reality. Now, we looked at some of that last week with noticing the parallels between Christ being born of a virgin and the spirit overshadowing Mary, comparing it to the spirit hovering over the waters to bring form and substance and order to the original creation. We looked at the parallels with Noah and the dove and its fluttering and, and the, the spirit and the way it's described in the Exodus out of Egypt and the comparisons to that, the temptations of Christ are a rerun, in essence, of what happened with Adam, except that with Christ, it begins in the wilderness where man was placed as opposed into the garden where God had placed him in order for Christ to reverse the curse. So let me turn you to a book called That You May Prosper by Ray Sutton. It's not a long book, but it's one of the first that I really read that began to make me realize there was more to what I believed as a Christian than what I had heard or had at least understood and, and comprehended. And so with that, here's what Ray Sutton wrote in his book, and I'm just going to read you some excerpts from it. Here is what he says about what took place in the garden between Adam and Eve and the serpent. After creation, Satan tried to make God a liar. His strategy was ingenious. He struck at God's hierarchy by taking the delegated authority given to Adam and by actually convincing the first man to give it to him, to Satan. He offered Adam divine authority in place of delegated authority. See, God had given him authority over the creation. Satan told man he would become like God, knowing good and evil, if he ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yet, he was trying to convince Adam of something that was already true. Man was created in the image of God. You see, having been made in the image of God, God had wired into him that which was righteous and true and just. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. It's not something that's 
added to us. It's inherent in who we are when, as the image is stamped and infused on our whole being. <laughs> and so it says, in a sense, Adam was already like God, a theomorph. But the way to manifest God was not by knowing good and evil. Rather, it was by ruling as a delegated authority. In the greatest deception of history, Satan had succeeded in robbing man of what he possessed by offering him what he could never have. The glory of man is he's been made in the image of God and been given a delegated authority over all the rest of the creation, and he traded that glory for what he could never have, which was to be God. And so Sutton continues, by so doing, he effectively made the first man obey his authority. Satan got man to obey him rather than God, which turned Satan then into the vice-regent of the earth and placed diabolical leaders in office. Adam's disobedience gave away, this is important, God's visible sovereignty as well as his own delegated authority and made Satan, not man, appear to be God. Now that's very important. I grew up not hearing much about the sovereignty of God and hearing that Satan ruled the earth as if God does not rule the earth and is no longer, in essence, sovereign. But that's confusing things. God cannot lose his sovereignty without ceasing to be God. What can happen is that the hierarchical authority structures by God and the delegation of authority could be perverted, misused, and in this case turned upside down where the creature, the serpent, became that which Adam obeyed. Adam and Eve and mankind always occupy a middle position between that which they call God and the creation. Satan simply reversed it, put God on the bottom and Satan on the top. Now, Here's what he then next says. It was an attempt by Satan to reverse the order of creation by turning upside down God's hierarchy. See, Satan couldn't rid God of his sovereignty, but he could mess with the hierarchical structure of God, man, creation. And so Sutton continues, the rest of the Bible tells the story of how God reestablished not his sovereignty. He never lost it because it can't be lost, but Adam's hierarchical rule over the world. God did this by sending a seed, remember that's the reference in Genesis 3.15, who represented him better than Adam, Seth, and so on and so forth. He said, one by one, each seed person fell just like Adam until the true son, the true seed, Jesus Christ. He was the only one who could truly manifest God's visible sovereignty in this earth because he was not fallen. His image had not been lost. His will, his mind, his, 
his affections had not been restructured, reordered, and diverted away from God towards ultimately Satan and himself. Christ died, rose again, and put a new delegated hierarchy on the earth again, the church. You see, what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is there is a second Adam who also represents a new creation, a new man on earth. But this second man, Christ, taking on the form of man, taking on a human nature unspoiled by sin, did what the first Adam did not do. That's why we went through Christus Victor. He reversed what had been done. He reversed the curse. And therefore, when he ascended into heaven, Christ became the eschatological man that Adam was supposed to be had he succeeded in the period of trial and probation that existed in the garden. Here, Adam, I've made you straight. I've made you right. Now obey me and go. Keep the garden. Extend Eden. Fill the earth for the glory of God. And had Adam succeeded in this probationary period of listening to and obeying the voice of God and, and conforming himself to the way in which he was made, he would have become that eschatological man that Christ has. Therefore, he is now the last man. There is no need for a third kind of Adam. There is no need for another kind of Savior. Christ has done what was required to be done. And by the Holy Spirit, he is now the author and the finisher of a salvation and of those who are being saved to carry out in this earth as part of the newly established kingdom what God intended at the beginning. And when we lose that, when we lose that view of the eschatological man, the eschatological purposes of Christ. I mean, eschaton is the word used of the last man, referring to Christ. When we lose that, we don't know where we're supposed to be progressing, what we're supposed to be doing. We don't understand that we have, we have been created as a part of this new creation. All things are new. What matters is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but new creation, Galatians chapter 6. Now go, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 11 and 12, and begin to reconcile all things back to God and to pull down those things which exalt themselves up against God and contrary to the knowledge of God and bring them captive in obedience to Jesus Christ. And that would include art and government and law, and economics, and media, and entertainment, and education. But see, when we lose this understanding of the representation of Adam as God's delegated authority on the earth through whose descendants he was to do what, what God planned in Genesis 1.28, and we lose the understanding that Christ is that second Adam who actually completed the first Adam's task and is bringing about a new creation and new descendants of this new Adam, we don't know what our purpose is other than to bide our time by being good till we can go off to heaven. 
That's why Protestantism wanders around aimlessly hither and thither. And next week, we're going to pick up on this, and we're going to drive it home in the realm of politics. And I'll look forward to joining you next week on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.